Hey there, this is Emmy. I'm here as promised um, to give you some vocabulary and terms and hopefully help to answer that eternal and oh so misguided question of why didn't she stay or why didn't she just leave? Which again, I'll take a moment to, to point out the obvious that that's definitely the wrong question to be asking because we should be asking, like, why the fuck did he do that? Very victim-blaming. But, at any rate, I think what we really mean when we say, you know, or when someone says, uh, why did she stay, or why didn't she just leave, I, th I think what the real question behind that is, is, um, what the hell happened? <laughs> and I think that's, that's a pretty relatable question, even from someone who, you know, has been through it, I think a lot of us have asked ourselves the same question after, like, what the hell happened? So today, I'm going to try to kind of give you some, I guess like a, a rundown of some bullet points um, of some terms and vocabulary to help explain what the hell happened and, and how it happens. A lot of these terms are interrelated and kind of overlap. Um, and it's obviously a complex issue, but I'll do my best to present them in the most logical order and the clearest manner that I can. Um, you know, I'm not a psychologist, obviously, but so I guess I'm not like a quote-unquote expert, but I do have a lot of first-hand experience for better or worse, and I've done uh, quite a bit of research for my own edification, if you will. So I'd like to think I have at least something to share. Okay, so let's get started. Um, I guess we'll start with the word grooming. Um, I think really all of the vocabulary I'm going to discuss today could fall under this term as kind of an umbrella. Um, and the term grooming is also used in relation to, um, you know, what a predator does to, um, basically manipulate a child in, in, say, like, sexual, like, child sexual abuse cases. But today I'll be focusing primarily just on, um, you know, domestic violence situations or um, interpersonal violence um, and uh, abusive relationships and in, in the term grooming in, in that context. Although I think they are kind of similar in a lot of ways. So yeah, when we're talking about abusive relationships, um, you know, domestic violence, psychopathic abuse, and relationships. Um, I think it's important to part, like, point out that, um, you know, it doesn't start out with them being an obvious monster because, of course, no one would fall for it if that were the case. Um, and it's not constant. I mean, it is constant, but what I guess what I mean is it's a cycle. Um, they're not always twenty four seven treating you like shit because again that would be obvious and people would just leave there's there's definitely a cycle of of sweet and sour if you will but before that even gets started um and that whole bad and good quote-unquote good cycle kind of you know reinforces that confusion and cognitive dissonance before any of that um when they first meet you know like a perspective victim if you will um, they start out with something, um, another term, which um, is called love bombing. Um, so this is uh, basically 
a, a way for them to establish um, quick trust in an emotional bond. Um, it encompasses a variety of things, but one is, um, you know, finding points of common ground. Like, oh, we like so many of the same things and we have the same goals. It's not that obvious, but that's part of it, you know? As well as, um, you know, flattery. And I'm not really talking just like shallow flattery. Um, some of them can get pretty crafty with it. But overall, it's just this stream of positivity and feeling of connection and support, which is something I think we're all looking for as humans, right? Uh, to feel understood. And that's what they simulate is acceptance, understanding, support, love. Um, I think anyone and everyone is vulnerable to this because it's what we all most deeply want. But I think specifically and especially if you lack a solid support system, um, and or if you're coming out of some major life trauma, you're definitely more vulnerable to this. And I think that's one of the reasons why so many women um, and people in general who are coming out of abusive relationships do kind of have this quote-unquote cycle of, you know, getting into an additional abusive relationship because they're vulnerable to it and, you know, predators can tell. <laughs> so, yeah. That's love bombing in a, in a nutshell. So once the love bombing is started and you know you have this emotional bond, um, depends on the person and the predator, but um, at some point they will introduce um, another concept and a term we'll define somewhat today, um, and that's called triangulation. Basically, um, it, it can be more subtle or more obvious, again, depending on the situation and the person. Um, but it's, it's basically comparison. Um, comparing you to frequently an ex, um, whether it be physically or mentally, um, you know, your job, your income, probably whatever you're most insecure about because they've already found that out during love bombing when you guys were being best buds and you were spilling your guts, you know? <laughs> so, uh, whatever you're insecure about, they'll point out as a positive in someone else and usually in kind of a sneaky way, you know? Um, and it, it's like subtle put downs, you know? Um, and, and they can become more obvious as they get more comfortable in their role as your tormentor. <laughs> Um, but the combination of the previous love bombing and that emotional bond the person has established with this predator, um, combining it with this now, you know, sudden, like, foreign concept of, of this triangulation and being put down and compared, it's, it's very confusing when you're in it because it seems like two such opposite things from the same person who's still saying they're crazy about you, but then, on the other hand... You know, constantly putting you down and comparing you and triangulating you with, with other people. Um, and, it, and it leads to um, cognitive dissidence or, you know, this idea of having two ideas or two concepts in your mind that are so different and your brain's trying to figure out which one is actually, you know, real. Um, and I think, um, yeah, like triangulation combined with love bombing, it, it leads to confusion, um, that cognitive dissonance, and it also leads to this tendency in the person to kind of like almost work harder, um, and, and that's how, you know, love bombing and triangulation can 
function as part of conditioning, which we'll cover in a little bit. Um, but yeah, so the confusion and cognitive dissonance, let's start there. Um, this can be further kind of drilled in to the, the victim, the person, um, by our next term, and that is called gaslighting. The term gaslighting actually, interesting little tidbit, it comes from a movie, kind of a film noir thriller um, that was put out in 1944 actually, and uh, it's about this really beautiful kind of successful woman um, who is like this opera singer type person and um, she falls in love with this guy who's like a manipulative piece of shit and um, through a variety of things um, he tries to drive her out of her mind <laughs> um, partially to cover up his cheating and partially um, because and I don't want to give away any spoilers in case you guys want to watch it it's pretty great but um, but basically he, he has like an ulterior motive in, involving you know stealing some gems that are hidden in a next door room or something but the point is, um, he would do things like hide her stuff and then say he didn't and then be like, wow, you must be crazy because you moved that and like convince her she had stolen things and she was losing her mind just through a variety of, of kind of insane, <laughs> um, I don't know, displays. Um, but he convinces her that she's losing her shit, you know, and convinces everyone around her that she's losing her mind so that she won't be in his way. So anyway, that's kind of where the term comes from. So as is probably obvious given the description I just said, um, gaslighting is a combination of a variety of really fucked up behaviors on the part of the perpetrator or predator um, with the goal of making someone doubt their sanity, um, their memory, their instinct, um, accomplished through, you know, like I said, a variety of kind of insane behaviors, um, including, you know, denial, like straight up denial and lies on the part of the, the perpetrator. And sometimes these kind of gaslighting techniques have a specific aim, you know, like, I don't know, say they're like, I'm going to go to the gym and then you realize they didn't bring their gym bag and they get back and you're like, you said you were going to the gym and you didn't have your gym bag. And they're like, I never said I was going to the gym. I said I was going to the store. And maybe, you know, the store was actually another woman's house, whatever. Sometimes it's to hide a specific behavior, but oftentimes it's just completely innocuous and it's all part of a, a greater effort to just slowly erode your sense of self and sanity so that you won't trust yourself for anything anymore and you'll rely on them to tell you what what happened, you know, what is happening. This is reinforced um, through, like I said, their denial of reality, like just utter denial, um, sometimes to the point where they'll say something and then within five minutes tell you that's not what they said, even though you heard it with your own ears or you know, that they don't remember, <laughs> um, or that you misheard, etc. But at any rate, um, also, in addition to this, um, they employ um, circular conversation. Um, Psychopath Free, um, the book, they actually refer to it as word salad. Um, but basically just these 
like just completely unrelated conversation topics they'll just weave in when you're in the middle of usually calling them on their bullshit um to distract you um from the point you know till you can't even remember why you started fighting (laughs) um which I think sometimes can happen in a normal relationship, but I think in, in a psychopathic relationship, I guess the, the main difference is it, it has intent um, to, you know, it has a purpose. Um, but anyway, another thing they'll employ is, you know, displacement. Um, like they'll, you know, I don't know, say, accuse you of, of cheating when they're showing obvious signs of infidelity. Um, maybe if uh, they're acting unstable, you know, they'll ask you if you're okay, if you're feeling unstable. (laughs) Um, uh, Also, they'll frequently um, justify their behavior when called on it um, through, you know, very unfair comparisons um, to, to kind of a ridiculous level. Say like, I don't know, you found another woman's hair on their jacket and they're like, well, they deny, deny, and then they're like, well, I did go over and see her, but last week you got groceries without telling me. <laughs> and it's like, okay, so you're getting, you know, they're, they're basically saying like you getting groceries without permission was justification for them spending the night with another woman. Um, just insane things like that. Um, that can all be part of of gaslighting and just erosing that sense of not only normalcy, but sanity. Um, And when we're talking about, you know, justifying behavior through unfair comparison, um, that's kind of leads us into the next um, term or terms that I'll discuss um, in terms of conditioning behavior, conditioning your behavior, or the the victim's behavior. Um, I'll I'll take a a moment to also um, kind of like mention that on a side note by this point in the process if you will um the victim is already isolated you know um through pretty much all of this um all of this is kind of aided in that in that isolation um because during love bombing like that stage or those stages they were guilting you know the the person you know, maybe being like, oh, why do you have to spend so much time with your friends or family or like with your work? Because, you know, I miss you and I'm so great or whatever. Um, also turning people against each other, like subtly, like, oh, I don't think they really have your best interest at heart because of X, Y, Z. And why would they lie to you? Because they're your best friend during love bombing, you know? So, um, And they've already also begun that isolation during, you know, that um, triangulation. Um, They begin isolating you and conditioning your behavior because um, when you're away, you start worrying, you know, what if they do something while I'm gone? Because they they give you little hints that that's definitely a possibility. They isolate you from your female friends by, you know, hitting on them or um, triangulating you with them. Um, They'll isolate you from your male friends um, by jealousy and, you know, saying, oh, I think they want to sleep with you and you're not being faithful, you know? And they'll hint that, you know, that might lead to them not being faithful. Um, 
And, and all of these thoughts that, you know, a victim will be having of like, if I leave, he might cheat on me. Like, I'm not going to hang out with my female friends because he might cheat on me with them. Um, I should spend more time with him, not my family. Like, all of that is really usually very subconscious, you know, at a subconscious level. Because again, this is all beginning the conditioning, which is operating at a very deep subconscious level. Because most of, most of us, if someone told us, hey, don't hang out with them, because I don't want you to, you'd be like, fuck you, <laughs> yes, I, I'm gonna go hang out with them, or hey, I, I'm gonna screw your friend if you keep hanging out with her, you'd be like, fuck you, uh, bye. But that's not the way it works, obviously, it's much more insidious, and that's why it's effective, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, and this is keeping in mind that a lot of, not all of us, but a lot of us, you know, coming into this might have already had, um, you know, a poor support system, or not much of a support system, or already been kind of feeling isolated um, but when you add all of this it it's basically leaves you with little to no one um, and the people you do have who are still a support system for you or maybe your family you know they're just as confused as you probably because you know thanks to the cycle of this over-the-top love bombing of like you're great I want to give you the world let's make a family I'm alternating with your shit and comparing you to everybody um, and the, the start of, you know, more obvious abuse, then, you know, the way you talk about them changes, the way you feel about them, and that cognitive dissidence is something that's going to show to your what's left of your support system, and it's going to be very confusing for them. So they're going to be like, well, which is it? <laughs> is he great or is he a monster? And you're just trying to figure out that for yourself, like, what the fuck is happening, you know? But you don't even have time because... It's constant. It's constant crisis, you know, with word salad mixed in. So anyway, that's just kind of a, that's kind of a side note before we totally jump into conditioning. So let's talk about conditioning. Conditioning, um, in this context, um, it's basically, uh, literal brainwashing, um, you know, psychological torture. So this is used to obviously condition behavior um, in a variety of different areas. Um, it can be used to condition sexual behavior or um, submission, as well as financial, um, pretty much anything you can imagine. When we talk about conditioning, um, there's basically two main forms of conditioning you know, that a abuser will use to create your new quote-unquote normal or erode any sense of it. The first one I'll talk about is classical conditioning, which, as the name implies, is one that kind of came about in psychological terms uh, first. Most people know this one. Um, in relation to um, Pavlov's dog experiment. But yeah, I mean, according to Lumen Learning, um, it's, it's basically where a, um, a conditioned stimulus becomes associated with an unrelated, unconditioned stimulus, um, creating a conditioned response. Um, so let's break that down a little for those of us who are kind of new to this. Um, so in Pavlov's dog experiment, um, Basically, um, when we're looking at, say, a, a conditioned stimulus, um, 
I think the easiest way to describe it is just telling you. I mean, dogs salivate at the sight of food normally, right? Like that's, that's a normal response that no one has to, you know, drill into the dog. It just does it naturally. Um, so what this experiment did is they had like a bell that they would ring whenever food was presented to a dog. Um, and kind of over a period of time, the dog would subconsciously associate the bell with the food and because the dog automatically salivates at the sight of food or the smell of food then the sound of the bell became associated indirectly with you know making them salivate basically so after a while they could remove the food completely and just have the bell and the dog would salivate and that that would be you know the most well-known example of of classical conditioning. So once the dog like started salivating without the food being present, when it was just the bell, then I guess what they would call it is having acquired that conditioned response, the conditioned response being salivating at the sound of a bell. I find this interesting in how this comes into play even after abuse in terms of PTSD, because um, there are certain you know, sounds or sights that will trigger something, you know, when you're talking about PTSD. And I think part of that is as a result of, of classical conditioning. Like if every time, you know, a partner drank, I don't know, like vodka, they would end up getting violent. Then at the side of vodka, you start feeling fear, you know, or shaking. And I just think that's kind of an interesting side note. But at any rate, classical conditioning can be used for a variety of of things to condition a variety of behaviors within an abusive situation. Um, I mean, obviously, I think um, conditioning someone to, you know, fear or react um, under certain circumstances. Also, when you talk about sexual abuse, um, to condition certain sexual responses, classical conditioning is huge in my experience. And it's just a really insidious way um, of brainwashing, basically. So that's kind of my take on classical conditioning in a nutshell, if you will. Um, so next, I'll talk about operant conditioning. It was introduced by a guy referred to as B.F. Skinner, according to simplypsychology.org, which is where I'm getting a lot of the information on operant conditioning that I'm quoting here. So it's based on um, something called the Law of Effect, which is kind of made up by another guy. It's basically um, just the notion that, you know, people are more likely to repeat behaviors when there's something, I guess, good that happens, and they're less likely to repeat behaviors where something bad happens, which is kind of just seems like common sense. but. Um, at any rate, Skinner, he introduced, um, something called reinforcement, um, kind of into the mix, the law of effect, um, to kind of create this operant conditioning idea. So it involves, like, you know, a lot of things, but three basic principles in terms of, um, I don't know, uh, effects, if you will, um, neutral being, you know, there is neither good nor bad inflicted on, um, a behavior or after a behavior reinforcers, um, 
after a behavior and punishments after a behavior. So punishments, that's probably kind of obvious, um, but probably a little more tricky than, than you might think. Um, so punishment would be like, you know, a behavior is done, like you knock over a cup of water and someone slaps your hand would be a really simple, you know, example of a, a punishment for a particular behavior. Um, reinforcers, um, there's both positive and negative. So positive would be like, I don't know, you drink a cup of water and you get a dollar. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but negative reinforcement would be different from punishment in the sense that negative reinforcement um, is the removal of an already present negative um, after a behavior. So something like, say, you're locked in a room that's like 100 degrees, but you say Mickey Mouse and then the air comes on. I don't know. That's really random, but that would be an example of a negative reinforcement. So it's taking away something negative from an existing situation because of a behavior versus a punishment would be, you know, you're in a normal temperature room and you say Mickey Mouse and then the heat comes on to like 100 degrees. So that's kind of how they differ, basically. So the idea is to condition behavior through operant conditioning. Um, you're mainly employing, obviously, reinforcers and punishers. Um, and there's different effects of each, but for the most part, negative and positive reinforcement um, within the context of like the description of what I just said um, seems to be more effective, um, but punishment can also be employed. Um, and usually these types of reinforcers um, are applied in intervals um, and cycles, and there's different, different effects based on you know, what cycle you're, you're using them in, if it's like a fixed interval or random, etc. Um, so I, I also find that interesting when we're relating it back to functioning as a part of, you know, brainwashing within abuse and a psychopathic relationship. Um, so yeah, according to simplypsychology.org, operant conditioning is a method of learning that occurs through rewards and punishments for behavior. Um, so through operant conditioning, an individual makes an association between a particular behavior and a consequence. So, like, it's a little more, um, I don't know, it's a little bit more conscious than classical conditioning, but it still functions at a very subconscious level because it's brainwashing. <laughs> and again, from simplypsychology.org, um, the main principles of operant conditioning um, compromises um, changing environmental events that are related to a person's behavior. Um, for example, the reinforcement of desired behaviors and ignoring or punishing undesirable ones. And, and this whole, these whole concepts um, are actually used in behavior shaping and behavior modif modification, um, you know, within psychology. <laughs> This article in particular also talks about um, 
the quote-unquote notion of behavior shaping through successive approximation. Um, so they say, Skinner argues that the principles of operant conditioning can be used to produce extremely complex behavior if rewards and punishments are delivered in such a way as to encourage a move and an organism closer and closer to the desired behavior each time. Uh, to do this, the conditions or contingencies required to receive the reward should shift each time the organism moves a step closer to the desired behavior. According to Skinner, most animal and human behavior, including language, can be explained as a product of this type of successive approximation. So yeah, basically it's insidious, right? It's like a slow, insidious, calculated method that works. That's why we're using it in psychology and learning. Um, but it's a, I guess, a really shitty way of using it um, when we're talking about these types of situations. But I think it's important to know that, you know, this is real heavy shit. <laughs> um, and it's not simple, you know? It's not. So, like I said, both classical and operant conditioning, um, they're used to condition behavior. Um, everything from financial behavior, sexual behavior, um, moves towards further isolation, um, but it all boils down to more power and more control, which is kind of its own point, I guess, um, for some creatures. So because of this, the brainwashing, conditioning, um, although threats are sometimes stated blatantly, usually they won't be unless they have to be. Frequently, I would almost venture to say, um, usually, um, the threats are implied, which can be a lot harder to explain to people outside of the situation. They're, they're threats that have been conditioned, um, basically so ingrained in your psyche that you know, you know, A plus B equals C, and no one has to tell you anymore, right? But it doesn't make it any less real. Um, so once all of these kind of concepts are complete, if you will, or they're feeling secure in, you know, you acquiring these new associations and behaviors, um, you know, the cycles will continue in terms of triangulation, love bombing, sweet and sour, like the conditioning, operant and classical, although it will become less and less necessary because it'll be more and more ingrained um, and you'll feel more and more trapped. Um, kind of like a cult, actually, very similar to a cult. Um, but the violence usually will escalate, um, and that's statistically true. Um, but I think one of the reasons is because I think it escalates when they know they can get away with it because you're significantly or satisfactorily <laughs> um, mentally entrenched already. So you're less likely to act out, you know, and people are less likely to believe you thanks to them making you look crazy and convincing you that you were crazy and isolating you. Um, not to say that there will always be outright obvious violence, but usually there is some form of escalating violence. Um, you know, whether it's beating you or extreme, you know, sexual violence, whatever it is, usually there is violence. And just because someone 
you know, is experiencing this does not mean they're going to tell you. Most likely, if you know anyone who's been through something like this and they've told you some things, they have not usually told you everything. So, at this point in the process, as a, you know, victim or, you know, person in the situation, you are brainwashed, you are conditioned, there is a massive financial strain usually um, where you feel trapped because of the financial abuse and, um, you know, you've been experiencing from them. You're trauma bonded from the cycle of them, you know, basically abusing you and treating you like shit. And then love bombing you and being the one to comfort you, which is, you know, its own hell. Um, And then being isolated with no one to remind you of what normal is, because by this point you've forgotten, because your new normal has been established through, you know, conditioning, behavioral modification, and any sense of self has been eroded in terms of your instinct through gaslighting. Um, Your memory's been put into question through gaslighting and just the chaos, you know? Um, And you're experiencing massive cognitive dissidence um, due to the triangulation and love cycling, love uh, bombing cycle, um, and the abuse that's just cycling and cycling and still happening and just adding, you know, adding on. And of course, again, like by this point, you're very isolated. Um, also, your self-worth is probably at an all-time low um, due to the implied and implicit put-downs and all the triangulation um, and just a feeling of helplessness and isolation. Um, also, you know, people are probably having a hard time believing you, the people who are still around, because they're very confused on what the hell is happening, probably just as much as, as you are. Um, and then the predator is, of course, reinforcing, you know, implicitly or explicitly that no one will believe you and that it's all in your head. So what does leaving looks like? Well, leaving looks like, um, let's see, creating a new life from scratch, um, trying to avoid being homeless thanks to your money issues, um, risking implied or, you know, explicit threats of harm or death in some cases. Um, sometimes it's not always just you, it's also, you know, if you have kids or animals, especially usually by this point there's been some kind of, you know, threat of violence or show of violence, whether it's, you know, something, uh, implied, like a lot of cracking knuckles when you're fighting, or maybe punching walls, pulling weapons, you know, or even up to animal abuse, you know, or child abuse or neglect. Or in, you know, the case of your your own person, it might be sexual abuse, it might be physical, you know, straight up physical abuse, or just an overarching, you know, threat of violence and aggression um, that by this point you just know is a very real threat. Um, and, you know, statistically, when someone leaves a situation like this is when they're most likely to be harmed, stalked and or murdered, um, like, it's, it's hugely a greater risk when you leave, or right before you leave, um, which is why it's so important to have, you know, an exit strategy, but a lot of people think, well, if, you know, he's never been violent before outright, 
then there's no real risk, but that's really not true because there have been plenty of cases where someone hasn't been, you know, it's not like they're technically beating their wife, but as soon as she tries to leave, he goes out and fucking murders her. It's, it's happened more than once for sure. Um, and the other thing to remember is for, and for an outsider to the situation is you don't really know whether he's been violent or not. Just because she didn't call doesn't mean that he wasn't violent, right? In some way, shape, or form. And the loss of control over their victim can lead or push some predators that extra step to become violent physically. And obviously, even if they haven't taken that leap yet, um, frequently that's when they do it. So yeah, um, mentally, it's about as difficult as extricating extricating yourself from a cult. Um, and usually this is without any help or very little help thanks again to the isolation i mean there are shelters out there but to go to a you know domestic violence shelter you would have to probably realize that you're in a domestic violence situation and frankly for a lot of people to get the strength to leave because it does take a lot um you would have to realize that you know you're in an abusive situation and believe it or not most people um, don't actually realize what's happening to them that they're being abused until they leave and or have time enough away to clear their head and realize what the hell just happened that's why i think vocabulary you know like some of the terms i've introduced at least um is so important because it does give us some validation and some power um and by association i think education um is extremely important um not just for people who are you know victims or survivors whatever you want to call it um or you know potential victims but also for the general public not only for themselves to avoid those situations and get out of them, but also to help people who are in them. Because the other thing that's so hard and makes leaving so hard um, and, and after leaving so hard <clears throat> is the judgment and misconception um, and, and frankly, just horrifying statements um, from sometimes well-meaning, but, you know, to be frank, uh, very ignorant people. Um, who just don't know what the hell they're talking about, you know? And, and, and that's understandable to some extent because this isn't a normal experience. You know, it's common, unfortunately, but it's not really something the average person would know if they haven't been through it or they haven't heard it from someone who has. So again, I think that's why it's so important for everyone to be educated on this so you can know how to support someone and you don't make their trauma worse and you don't push them further into isolation. Because the majority of people coming out of abuse and trauma, you know, or, or coming out of it with PTSD um, frequently, especially if you've had consecutive abuse, um, CPTSD, um, which is complex PTSD, for those of you who are curious. Um, and, and interestingly enough, that is the same psychological condition that um, CPTSD that survivors of um, military incarceration and torture as well as cult survivors experience because it's a condition that in contrast to regular PTSD, CPTSD um, 
it's an overall, it, it's, it's something that's affected like a series of behaviors that have been enacted on you and a situation you've been kind of trapped in that has altered the way you view the world. So it, it very is, is very much reconstructing your own reality and leaving and it's extremely isolating. And I think, you know, I mean, rates for suicide among domestic violence, um, survivors is, is massive. Um, and part of that is, yeah, CPTSD, PTSD. Um, but also uh, I think personally, I think a big part of that is also the continued feelings of isolation. Cause that's a huge risk factor when we're talking about suicide is, is feelings of, you know, not being able to escape and isolation. And I think PTSD and CPTSD already has, you know, these horrible memories coming back to you and feeling like, well, I got out, but I'm still dealing. But when you add on to it, this feeling of, you know, the isolation continuing because there is a lack of understanding it and, and a lot of judgment and a lot of a lack of support for, you know, these survivors, um, so I think it's really important that we educate the general public so that they don't, you know, unintentionally say something stupid and horrible and, you know, make these survivors' trauma worse and their, you know, depression worse and, you know, God forbid, their likelihood of suicide worse or greater, you know? Um, so what can we do? Um, educate, for one. Um, spread awareness so we know what to look out for we know what to do to help people who are in these situations coming out of these situations we know the warning signs so even if someone who's in these kinds of things don't know what they're going through you know you can be there for them and keep an eye on them um, and, I, and I think listening is important even if you don't understand and even if you know you feel like it's unpleasant I think listening is, is one of the greatest gifts you can give someone, whether they're in a situation or trying to extricate themselves or have already gotten out, just being there to listen, you know, not, not give advice, just listen. Um, the only thing I would say that I wish I would have heard more of and I try to give people is the simple but true phrase, um, you deserve better, right? So I think that and just listening is, is the best thing you can do for somebody, no matter how many times it takes them telling you the same, same things, because maybe that's part of the process, you know, and if you care about someone, then that's what you do. Um, so anyway, those are great ways you can help. Um, I would like in an upcoming podcast to kind of do like a little bit of a, <laughs> I don't know, like a darkly humorous approach to, you know, more topics within this issue in terms of say like, um, how to avoid being an unintentional asshole, uh, when dealing with a trauma survivor, like what not to say, <laughs> cause I think I just covered what to say and it's pretty simple. Just you deserve better be a listening ear, you know, but, but I think a lot of times when we're trying to help things we don't understand, you know, we, we sometimes mess up and that's to error as human. But I think maybe having a few examples of some common things I've heard in my own life and you know, in the lives of friends that people have said to them that I, I'll, I want to delve into what someone says, you know, some of these statements and what the survivor or victim, what they hear that as, because I think that's kind of an important 
distinction of, of what you're saying versus how it's being taken. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, I think, you know, most of us mean well, and we're just kind of wondering, how the hell does this happen? <laughs> and I hope that this little rant of mine has at least started to shed some light on how the fuck this happens. And, you know, maybe a little bit in the process of what we can do to stop it, or at very least to educate ourselves and others in ways that we can help survivors, right? So anyway, that's uh, that's today's podcast. It was a long one, so congrats if you got through it. Um, and yeah, I guess this is me signing off. <laughs>